Welcome to 15 Minutes of Fangs and Folklore with your host, Matthew Miller. We give you pint-sized, bite-sized pieces of supernatural monster lore, exploring their origins, their history, and their meaning to the human condition. Listen, if you dare. Dark shadows moving around your house. Black, cloudy forms walking through walls. Invisible entities that sexually assault you. The odor of sulfur. Attacks on your children. The full-bodied apparition of a demon. What would you do if these things infested your home and refused to leave no matter what you tried? I'm your host, Matthew Miller, expert on all things monster and paranormal. I'm a horror writer from the haunted dark swamps of Louisiana, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to my terrifying world. I have a series of books out, horror novels. They're comedy horror, actually, that I think you'll enjoy. The first one is called Blood Feud, a punk rock vampire story. Find it on Amazon. It's the first in the Gravediggers series. The Gravediggers are a failing punk rock band who keep crossing paths with dark, evil, nasty creatures of the night. It's horror, it's comedy, it's super entertaining. It's a six-part series. One through three are available on Amazon. Four is coming out any day now, so be sure to read the first three to keep up. Great. I'm continuing the trend of doing 15 minutes of fangs and folklore in audio and video version each time so that you can choose to listen or to watch. Hope you're enjoying it. I may have to remove the 15 minutes of part from the title because I keep running over 15 minutes because these poltergeist cases are just so damn interesting. And terrifying. So bear with me as I learn. We've looked at two poltergeist cases in England, uh, each of which stand out among all poltergeist hauntings because of, well, for many reasons, but that was the Enfield poltergeist case and the Battersea poltergeist case. Now let's cross the ocean, come here to the good old USA, and examine a poltergeist haunting that was brutal on the family and that I believe illustrates my own opinion that poltergeists are not the ghosts of deceased humans, but rather demons or evil spirits pretending to be ghosts. And I'm talking about the Smurl haunting. By the way, if you're watching the video, some of the photographs I'm going to show, keep in mind these are from the 1970s and 80s when the case was taking place, and they weren't really good quality then. <laughs> so to us today, they look pretty grainy and bad, and many are black and white. I apologize, but that's just the best. That's the only, only photos available still from this case. One thing that interests me about the Smurl case is that the family believed the entity was a demon from the start. They never believed it was a poltergeist or a ghost. They thought it was a demon. The entity definitely, though, acted like a poltergeist. Absolutely classic poltergeist case. But the family, being very religious, very Catholic, and very sincere in their faith, never viewed it as a poltergeist or really anything other than a demon. The address is 328 Chase Street, that's in West Pittston, Pennsylvania, USA. That's where the haunting occurred. The house is still there today and is not haunted anymore. Just a funny thing to mention, I was using Google Earth to find the address. I was going to get a good you know, photo for you, a good high-resolution photo of the house from Google Earth. 
to locate the Smurl house, and the entire town around it was rendered perfectly, but the house, just a little area around the house, wouldn't render. It was, it was kind of funny. I said, hmm, maybe Google Earth is haunted. And it turns out, actually, Google did that on purpose so that people won't harass the people living there now. You know, um, you can't find the picture and then locate the house and go knock on the door and say, is it haunted? I'm sure they get that 100 times a day and they're sick of it. So I think Google did that on purpose to blur it a little bit. They do that sometimes. Okay, January of 1974, a stain appeared on the carpet. You might think, well, big deal. I got stains all over my carpet. <laughs> it's a simple kind of dark you know, water stain. If you remember from previous podcasts, it is extremely common in poltergeist hauntings for a puddle of liquid to appear. <clears throat> it's usually viscous, almost like a simple syrup kind of consistency. Smells faintly of urine, and when it's been analyzed, it's turned out to be some urine, some water, and some unidentifiable organic matter. Well, if that puddle appears on a carpeted floor, of course, it's going to look like a stain. The thing about this stain, though, is the Smurls tried over and over to remove it. It would never go away. They'd clean it. It would come back. And there was no obvious source of it. You might think, well, something was leaking. No, they had it looked at. Nothing was leaking. It just wouldn't go away. It kept coming back. <clears throat> That's how it started. So many things happened during the Smurl poltergeist case that it's difficult to construct a timeline. It's also kind of difficult to sort through the phenomena that the Smurls claimed really happened and the legend surrounding it. But fear not, your faithful host has done the hard work for you. That's me, by the way. Just sit back and enjoy. <clears throat> so I've made a list of the reported phenomena. Here are the things that happened in the first year of the haunting, 1974. First, we have the aforementioned stain that wouldn't go away, kept coming back even after being cleaned. Then pipes were incessantly leaking, and you might think, you know, the rational mind is going to say, aha, there's the source of the stain. But it wasn't, because it wasn't over a pipe. And also these pipes, they would fix them, they'd leak again. Even replace them with brand new pipes, they would keep leaking again. There was no physical reason for these pipes to be leaking. They were looked at by plumbers. Uh, there was no leak in them, but they kept leaking. Deep scratches, I don't mean just surface scratches, but deep ruts, scratches, claw marks, appeared in the bathtub, which is ceramic, so you can imagine the strength, and on the non-carpeted areas of the floor. The family did have a pet dog, um, you know, full disclosure, it was a German Shepherd, but he didn't go into the bathtub, and the scratches were deep and clearly not the, the fit for that dog's paw, and deeper than a dog could have scratched a ceramic, uh, you know, bathtub, you know how hard that would be. The television exploded. Yes, it actually exploded. Lights would flicker on and off. Electrical appliances had all sorts of trouble. So that's the beginning, first year. <clears throat> You'll notice that this poltergeist case does not begin with scratching sounds in the walls. That's almost always the very first sign of the beginning of a poltergeist. This one didn't. There was scratching eventually, but it wasn't the beginning. That's kind of odd. Those phenomena that I just mentioned continued. And then in 1975, more. The oldest daughter, <clears throat> Dawn, told Jack and Janet that she... Get this. Oh, my God. Every time I read this, it scares the hell out of me. She saw people floating around her bedroom at night. I don't know why that image just scares me to death. People floating around your bedroom. My God. Then in 1977, more phenomena began. They heard clear footsteps on the stairs and in the halls when no one was there, obviously. The radio more than once played loudly, blared out music when it was not plugged in. And in the 70s and 80s, you know, if, if you're not familiar, 
radios then, uh, you know, they, they had to be plugged into work. They weren't like phones with these great lithium ion batteries and so forth. You unplugged it, it stopped, it turned off. So the radios were playing even when they were unplugged. Random unexplained cold spots, and you'll remember this uh, as one very common uh, occurrence in poltergeist cases. In fact, in all sorts of hauntings, cold spots are a clue. Drawers were opened and shut, like slammed shut loudly. Jack felt unseen hands brushing against him, caressing him, and you know, touching his neck and so forth. The odor of death and rot was noticed throughout the house. Now note that this smell, often referred to as sulfur, that's the, the base smell there, is common in demonic infestations and possessions. It's one sign of a demon. The whole place smells like sulfur. That is a sign of a demon, a demon's presence. Jack claimed to have the constant feeling of being watched. Now, I personally am cautious about using this particular thing as any sort of evidence of a haunting. University studies have shown that we actually cannot tell if we're being watched. They've set up studies where you don't know if someone's watching you or they're not, and they say, do you feel like you're being watched? Turns out we can't tell if we're being watched. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a myth. And I imagine also that living in a house that you believe is infested with a demon, you probably feel like you're being watched all the time anyway, right? My father's house has a large wall of windows looking out into the backyard and on a river. And when I've stayed there by myself overnight, walking past that window, I always felt like I was being watched. I wasn't, but it felt like it. So that's not a very reliable uh, clue, in my opinion. Now, this is the kitchen table and chairs moved. And at least once were stacked on top of the table, like in the movie Poltergeist, the 1982 movie Poltergeist. You remember the mother looks down to do something, turns back around, all the stairs, uh, chairs are stacked up on her table. That actually happened in this case. So all of the previous phenomena continued for years. In 1985, Janet Smurl, the mother, gave birth to the twins named Shannon and Karen. And things stepped up from there. First of all, in February, Janet was sitting in the kitchen. She saw, uh, saw this figure, like a shadow figure, she, kind of the shape of a human, but shadowy, smoky black. It appeared, it walked across the kitchen right in front of her, and it walked through the kitchen wall that connected her half to Jack's parents' half. At the same time, Jack's mother, Mary, was there, you know, right across the wall, and claimed to see a shadow figure enter her half through the wall, as if the same figure had gone from one side to the other. A ceiling fan fell down and almost crushed Shannon, the twin. Now, Jack and his father, John, had installed the fan themselves. They claimed it was installed tightly, very securely, with thick bolts. They said there's no way it could have just come, come loose for no reason. Scratches appeared on the family member's skin. This is not uncommon at all in these cases. And when I say scratches, it's not like deep bleeding, you know, incisions, but basically... What happens usually, the person will feel a sort of stinging or burning in one area of their skin, sometimes the back, and they'll look at it and uh, notice that there are some kind of red scratch marks. Not super deep, but they're there. And often the scratches come in three, the number three, which is said to be mocking the trinity of the Christian religion. That's just something people claim. The dog, their German shepherd, poor guy, was levitated and thrown against the wall. He was fine. And I personally hate it when animals are, are harmed in any way. Uh, but note, he, he was a heavy German shepherd, so that's a lot of force there uh, to pick him up. Jack and Janet Smurl levitated in their bed, another common element of poltergeist hauntings. They each levitated more than once. Once Jack woke up, he was paralyzed, 
couldn't move, but he was awake, and he watched as Janet was pulled out of bed by an, an invisible force. During the day, Janet and her stepmother, Mary, were often home. Uh, they were both homemakers, stay-at-home wives, stay-at-home moms. And often, each would hear the other's voice calling her name. So Mary would hear Janet calling out, Hey, Mary! Mary would hear Janet, uh, Janet would hear Mary calling out, Hey, Janet! And then they'd look, and no one had said anything. Uh, so this was the entity kind of mocking them. Mary, Jack's mother, for a while, thought that Jack and Janet's marriage was in trouble because she would hear them in these loud, violent, screaming fights where they would yell curses and insults, completely out of character. When she asked them about it, they said, we never had anything like that. It was, it was the entity making these voices. The neighbors could hear voices shouting and banging from, outside the I mean, from inside the house, but they were on the outside, even when the Smurls were not at home. So when the entire family was gone, the neighbors would still hear these things. In fact, it was a common phenomenon, and people would drive there just to hear it. You know, they would go by the house just to hear it. Now, in January of 1986, Jack Smurl saw something on TV about Ed and Lorraine Warren. You may have heard of these rather famous paranormal investigators. The movie series The Conjuring is based on their work. They're paranormal investigators, demonologists. I believe they're both now deceased, but they were really big for a long time. He wrote to them about this situation. They agreed to go there. They took with them a Rosemary Frew, who was a psychic. And they stayed there and investigated for, for a few months. Their conclusion was that the house was indeed being haunted. And according to Lorraine Warren, who claimed to be a medium, <laughs> by four entities. One, the ghost of a harmless older woman. Two, the ghost of a young and violent girl. Three, an unnamed man who had lived in the house. He had suffered and died there. And then a demon. And according to Lorraine, this demon controlled and terrorized the other three spirits. Ed Warren said, quote, The Smurls are truly a family coming under a visual attack. The ghost, devil, demon, or whatever you call it, is in that home. Close quote. Ed and Lorraine began holding prayer meetings in the house with the Smurl family. They even had a local Catholic prayer group agree to attend some of these. The meetings didn't seem to really help make any progress. So finally, the Warrens asked the Catholic Church to perform an exorcism. I've said before, it's quite difficult to get the Catholic Church to perform an exorcism. They have to be completely convinced that it is a supernatural event and not, you know, can't be anything that could explain by natural means, could be explained by natural means, or anything that could be explained by medical conditions. And they really have to be convinced. So they denied the Smurls. They said, no, we, we're not convinced. Eventually, the Warrens did convince a Father Robert McKenna to perform an exorcism on the house. Father McKenna was a, an exorcist. Some priests are designated exorcists in the Catholic Church, not all of them. And Father McKenna had worked with the Warrens before. He was an exorcist. He was approved by the Vatican. I personally wonder, though, if he didn't perform these exorcisms rather easily. <laughs> like It's so difficult to get the Catholic Church to perform them, but he's there with Ed and Lorraine, you know, exercising exercising all around town. <laughs> I just wonder if he wasn't a little loose and easy with his exorcisms. Anyway, he was a real priest, though. He held the exorcism, and as, happened in, as happens in most poltergeist cases that include exorcism, it seemed to work. The, these events, the phenomena stopped, but only temporarily, and then things got worse. That's almost always what happens on the first exorcism in a poltergeist case. I'll tell you what I mean in a moment, but just quickly, I want to mention that Father Robert McKenna performed a total of two exorcisms and they didn't drive out the entity. Now, during this same time period, a medium, a self-proclaimed medium, named Mary Alice Rinkman, 
went through the house, agreed with Lorraine Warren about there being a demon and three ghosts. And Rinkman discovered, claimed, put it that way, one of the spirits was an elderly woman named Abigail. Uh, the other was a black man. I don't know why it's always necessary to say black man instead of just man, but that's what she said. Patrick, who had killed his wife and her lover, but was not able to recognize the third ghost. Now, during this time, another priest spent two nights in the Smurl house and said nothing out of the ordinary happened. For those of you watching the video, I have a very special treat for you. You're about to see two video clips from the haunting itself. Now, if you're listening to the podcast, not watching the video, I will describe them. The first clip is Ed Warren using religious words and commands, commanding the entity to reveal itself. When he does this, the kitchen chairs and tables move by themselves. The second clip is one of the daughters, the Smurl daughters, sitting at that same kitchen table doing her homework. As she does her homework, the chair she's sitting on keeps scooting back and tilting backwards. Her feet are on the rungs of the chair, not on the floor, so she can't be pushing it up. Her mother's behind her, and when the chair moves, her mother pushes it back into position. And more than once, it moves when the mother's hands are clearly not on the chair. So it's moving backwards, scooting backwards, and then tilting backwards. And then the table itself also moves away from the girl. Now, could these videos have been faked? Yes, any video can be faked. Keep in mind in the 70s and 80s, it was much, much harder to fake videos than it is today. Today we have CGI uh, and we have manipulation. Those days you didn't. All faking had to be analog in those days. So it was a lot more difficult. What, you, what they would have had to, done, had to have done is use like a string or pulley system of something. They couldn't just digitally alter it. They had to physically, you know, use physical effects. But there are some reasons I don't believe these videos are faked. First of all, this is one of the only videos in all of Ed and Lorraine Warren's career that has this level of supernatural activity. If they were just con artists pulling strings, it stands to reason that they would have created more fake videos to try to convince more people. But there's almost no such video except this particular one from this one case. And especially in the girl doing her homework clip, the chair moves when no one is touching it and the girl's feet are clearly not touching the floor. It would require a fairly elaborate rig, you know, a block and tackle pulley system or something to fake that. Again, not impossible, but they would have had to have some kind of elaborate system because the chair both scoots back and tips back and that means it's uh, operating in two different axes, right? Two different dimensions, maybe. Um, well, axes is a better term there. The character of the Smurls and the Warrens, meaning their moral character and their strong Catholic faith, in my opinion, precludes them from setting up this kind of obvious fraud. Even if you think the Warrens were frauds, and, and some people do believe they were frauds, everything we know about the Smurls is that they were down-to-earth, honest, sincere people with strong Christian faith. They were not the kind of people who would lie and cheat because to them those were sins. They always came across as very sincere, even to their harshest critics. Even their harshest critics agreed that the Smurls at least believed that what they saw was real, regardless of whether it was. As of today, um, January 29th, 2022, it's been 33 years since the haunting stopped. Since then, Jack Smurl and his parents have passed away. So I can't help but wonder, in all that time, if they were all faking it, wouldn't someone have said something somehow? Um, I don't know. It just seems like one of the children at least would have spilled the beans. So I think that the videos are authentic. Now, after the exorcism attempts, things got worse, like the poltergeist was angry. What happened? Well, Janet and, Ma Janet and Mary, who was 
Jack's mother, had scratches, bruises, and bite marks on their bodies. Several members of the family were sexually assaulted. This is a very rare phenomenon. It's happened before in poltergeist cases, but it's very rare. Jack claimed to have been raped by the entity, like fully raped. Janet claimed the same thing. It is implied also that Dawn, one of the twins, was sexually assaulted, and, and she would have been quite young then. The twin, Karen, became extremely ill and almost died from an infection that couldn't be really identified. Mary had a heart attack. She survived, but she had a heart attack. The worst of the worst, Jack saw a black, fiery, full-bodied demon in the hall one night. He had gotten up for some reason. He saw it at the end of the hall looking at him. He freezes, scared to death, obviously. It races towards him, and just when it's about to hit him, you know, he winces, and then it goes through him and doesn't touch him. But he said it looked like an actual demon, you know, the horns and, and the claws. And the, uh, I can't imagine the kind of fear that would produce if it really happened. So the Smurls tried one last religious attack against the entity. A non-Vatican commissioned exorcism, in other words, they held an exorcism, but the Vatican hadn't approved of it. It was conducted by several priests and several members of the local Catholic Church. And during the exorcism, a voice, a disembodied voice, allegedly shouted, quote, you filthy bastard, get out of this house, close quote. The house shook. Also, they saw two female ghosts during the exorcism appear. They were dressed in American colonial era clothing. Then after the exorcism, after that third exorcism, the activity ceased for several months and they thought, all right, it's over. It seemed to be over. It began creeping back in, the activity, with a knock here, a shadow in the corner moving there, and the Smurls said, all right, enough of this. They sold the house and they moved in 1989. They never again experienced any paranormal activity in their lives, and Deborah Owens, who moved into the house after them, claims that nothing out of the ordinary ever happened. Jack Smurl and his parents, I mentioned, are since deceased, but Janet and her adult children are still alive and apparently doing fine. Throughout the case, by the way, throngs of reporters and curious people were outside the Smurl house. Some of them camped out, even. Uh, they often snuck onto the porch to peek inside. They went to see if they could hear any of the sounds. It was a media circus, basically. The entire ordeal lasted from 1974 to 1989. That's 15 years, even longer than the Battersea Poltergeist case, so I stand corrected. I had said that I thought the Battersea Poltergeist case at 12 years was the longest ever, but this one's 15 years, so this is even longer. That this could be the longest recorded uh, poltergeist haunting in history. I've mentioned before a poltergeist haunting ends in one of three ways. One, the people move away. Two, an exorcism finally works. Or three, it just stops one day. And this one defied the exorcisms, apparently, and the family had to move out to finally end it. This case has many things in common with the average poltergeist case. You have the mysterious puddle of water, in this case, the stain on the carpet. There were pubescent people living there, many. You know, that seems to be a common case, a common um, uh, factor in poltergeist cases, pubescent people living there. Objects being manipulated by unseen hands, loud banging and other noises, disembodied voices, in this case, mocking them, full-bodied apparitions. But this one has a decidedly darker, more evil twist as well. The black, smoky shadow forms, the demonic uh, apparition, the sexual assault, the physical assaults, the clawing of the tub. These certainly seem demonic and not the, uh, not the work of the ghost of a dead person. Again, it lasted 15 years, which is exceptional in the world of poltergeist. 
You might question my claim, by the way, that the average poltergeist haunting lasts two to three months because every case I tell you about lasts a lot longer. But that's actually the reason I choose these cases because they're quite exceptional. The average poltergeist case you usually don't hear about or don't hear too much about, and it does last two to three months. As for skeptics, the usual criticism, the family could have been faking it. Always possible. I grant you that. <clears throat> what I find interesting, though, is that... Um, Paul Kurtz, who was a very harsh critic and skeptic of the Smurl case, thought they were he thought that it was fake. But even he was taken aback by the sincerity of the Smurls. Uh, according to him, they were just simple, down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth religious people, and they were very sure that they had witnessed what they claimed to have witnessed. The sulfur odor that permeated the house is blamed by skeptics on a faulty sewer pipe. By itself, Perhaps this could have been an explanation for the odor, yeah. But with all of the other phenomena I described, I'm not so sure because, well, especially because the stench of sulfur is one of the fundamental signs of a demonic presence. When a family in a poltergeist case is very religious, skeptics always claim it would have been easy for a few normal natural phenomena to add up and cause them to start believing in a haunting or a demon. In other words, if you're predisposed to belief in demons, then you might see them where they're, you know, where they're not. Uh, it's true. It's possible. I suppose it all depends on the evidence itself. Ed Warren claimed to have audio and video evidence of the phenomena. I showed you a little bit, but he claimed to have more, but never produced them when asked to show them. He also gave conflicting reports about where they were. You have to ask, why not just show us? There were rumors of the Smurls and talks with a movie producer or a book publisher about the case. Skeptics point to this as possible uh, motive to fake the haunting. But there's no evidence that they were being dishonest. Even if they were going to do a book or a movie, you can't just assume that the worst of them, we don't know that. You know, Nothing about doing a movie precludes the case still being true. They were simple religious people. They believed lying was a sin. By the way, there was a movie made about it in 1991 called The Haunted. It's worth a watch. It's interesting. My opinion, if you want to know, <laughs> there are things about the Smurl case that seem authentic to me. Voices, noises heard by neighbors, even when the Smurls were not home. The odor, the demonic sulfuric odor. The character of the Smurls, they weren't elaborate con people. They were simple working people who, who had you know, strong faith. They did not get rich from the case. And there's no evidence that, really, no real evidence that they ever attempted to get rich from the case. It bears the marks of a real poltergeist case. And you know my opinion that poltergeists are not the ghosts of dead people but demons pretending to be the ghosts of dead people to cause harm. What do you think of this exceptionally evil and dark poltergeist case? Was it real? Was it fake? Was it indeed a ghost or several ghosts? Was it a demon? I'd love to hear from you in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube. But tonight, if a shadow person walks through your kitchen wall, well, you might just want to move. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please like and subscribe, and as always, sleep well, if you can.